Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today our guest is Gary F. Bengier, a writer, philosopher, and technologist, the author of the award-winning sci-fi novel Unfettered Journey, and a board member with the Santa Fe Institute. Let's begin. Hi, Gary. Welcome. Well, hello, George. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Yeah, it's nice to, nice to have you. I'm really delighted, very excited. Um, and I like to ask all my guests where you're calling in from and uh, what the weather's like. So I'm here in San Francisco today. I've just gotten back from a weekend in Santa Fe where I was uh, at the Santa Fe Institute. I'm on the board there and uh, their weather was cold and um, lots of fire danger. So I'm delighted to see that we don't yet have that here in Northern California. Yeah, it usually comes on a little bit later in the summer, doesn't it? I mean, I'm was, afraid you know, so. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I have a, a uh, nephew that lives in Santa Rosa and he's been right in the heart of some of those big fires. So, yeah, and that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a common theme of, you know, the way the climate is changing over time. I happen to be in Concord, Massachusetts right now, and it's kind of a drizzly, drizzly day out, so not unusual for the spring. And, you know, we don't, thankfully, don't have, uh, have a lot of big fire danger here. Um, and the hurricanes usually avoid us. So that's, uh, uh, feel safe to be in this location. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm really excited about talking to you because uh, your book that uh, I think it's came out just over a year ago, I guess it was. That's and, right. Uh, about a year yeah, and a half ago now. Yeah. Unfettered Journey. And I just found it to be a really fun, compelling narrative, you know, great love story, uh, you know, speculative fiction of, of a good, good, good type. But then woven in that was some lightly done, but some serious philosophical concepts that are woven in there. So I just, I just wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you know, what, what was that journey like to put that together? <laughs> Well, um, and I'm glad we'll start with the book, but I think we should move on because I think, uh, George, we won't be talking about the book. So to summarize that, I actually have two books. I have a book called Unfettered Journey Appendices, which is uh, a rigorous, very thin volume with basically three papers on it. Uh, Philosophical Explorations on Time, Ontology, and the nature of mind. So those three topics are covered. So I think we'll be talking a lot about that. Um, my, my writing of the novel was to, to uh, produce a work that would be an less rigorous and easier entree to the, some of those topics. So it starts from the philosophy. And as you said, my book, Unfettered Journey, is a novel. It's a literary cross-genre uh, adventure and love story that is takes place in the future and it explores a lot of philosophical issues uh, uh, as well as questions of what society will be like and uh, social justice in the future and uh, and I think it's I think it's a, a good read I've got lots of good feedback from yeah. it uh, um, it's now in uh, seven languages and my Russian edition will be coming out this week so I'll be in eight languages uh, and the book has won uh, seven awards to date so yeah. very pleased with the the uh, the uh, introduction of that but today we'll be talking about, I think, more of the philosophy. So I'm delighted well, just, to talk to you about that. 
Yeah, and I just I just wanted to ask one question about the book. It it almost feels like you have a compelling uh, story about the philosophy that you want to communicate, and you know, and dealing with the world, and and this was a vehicle for you to accomplish that goal, as opposed to writing a book because you want to make a lot of money or get a lot That's of. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, there's there's absolutely no 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 financial uh, reward in writing a book these days. I think yeah. for anybody, yeah. and that's not the objective. Yeah, the actual objective uh, was to get the philosophy out to a larger audience. And, yeah. and you know, it's uh, most of academics, um, it's a fairly uh, narrow area with a very small readership. And so, um, but I think these are important ideas. And yeah. and I, I've been thinking about some of these ideas for over 30 years. So yeah. uh, some, some ask me about, you know, the writing um, process and I've got sort of one, one book, <laughs> that's it. Because uh, I think I've got one, I think, important idea. So. Yeah. So, so your journey, um, as you said, you've been thinking about these ideas for for thirty years, but you you got started in in the business world and the tech world before that. And so, so how have you kind of made that journey from business and tech into uh, f complexity and philosophy? And you know, you 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 know. So, what was that journey like? Your journey. <laughs> well, yeah. Well. Uh, Quite honestly, if I look back at my undergraduate days when I arrived at university, I actually had some regrets. Some of my colleagues in the honors college, they were pursuing philosophy degrees. And it was it was sad to me that I realized I couldn't switch and do that or mathematics, which I which I also really loved. But uh, I just didn't have the money to be able to do anything except a more practical kind of uh, path. And so so I uh, got degrees in computer science and decision theory and um, and then had more of a business career. So for, you know, order of over 30 years, I was um, pursuing a successful career and um, I, I love technology. So I um, I learned a lot and enjoyed a lot of going deep into technology as part of that. But mm. um, I always had this <laughs> desire to get back to some of those fundamental questions that had always intrigued me. You know, why are we here? Um, mm. um, you know, do we have free will? I mean, those mm -hmm. questions just have been with me throughout. So uh, you know, as as I'm pursuing this career, for example, I, uh, I would <laughs> read Kierkegaard. Um, I uh, tried by myself to uh, understand Kant, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. With without a without a guide, uh, it's very difficult to do this. And so yeah, it's very very difficult. Uh, yeah. So, so so and I'm also interested. You you landed at the Santa Fe Institute uh, on the board there, and and uh, you know what excites you about what's happening there? Well, I I I, I was at um, eBay, and eBay is a complex network, and um, in around 1999 2000. Um, Pierre Omidyar and I, uh, the, the founder, and I went down to Santa Fe, and we both became intrigued. He joined the board, and um, and then I shortly did afterwards in about 2003 or so. So I've been on the board of the Santa Fe Institute for quite a number of years, um, and um, the, the 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 mathematics of complexity has intrigued me. Um, I think James Glick wrote his book Chaos in the late 80s, and I remember getting that and just being uh, just being taken by the uh, nonlinearity of the world that the mathematics described. And mm -hmm. and I think being um, associated with Santa Fe Institute for so many years, it gives you a paradigm about thinking about the world. 
um, that uh, there, there's a deep feeling, I think, among the shared among the people who've, who've been um, engaged there, that the world itself is organized in a very complex way. And we find complex systems defining everything. So it's a different mm -hmm. way of looking at the world. And I think it's an important paradigm. So. Yeah, and that's, that's a good way to start because I, I wanted to start with kind of one of the roots of complexity science. You know, it covers a lot of territory, a lot of disparate fields, but one of the roots is in uh, the study of dynamic systems. And one of the observations that uh, some people have made about kind of the roots of science, uh, you know, through the years from the, from the Greeks and then through the, you know, scientific and, you know, enlightenment, the revolution and, and on into the uh, modern age, um, is the sense that, you know, scientists are generally looking at, you know, little things in boxes or closed, closed, what you might call closed systems, experimental, setting up experiments, looking at things in that inside of that box. And that ends up casting the world in these uh, sort of little frames. And, uh, and that's sort of consistent with thinking about things as, as inside of a box or a closed, a closed system, if you will, an experimental system or closed system. But, uh, Complex systems are not closed. They're dynamic. They're you know every, everything has a flow of either energy or matter or things going you know so that's a very different kind of uh, thing to be looking at than the old the old fashioned closed systems. Okay, I wonder yeah. if you just talk about that for a second. Yeah. So well, so let's just um, let's take a simple example. Um, imagine a pendulum swinging back and forth. Okay. And then you can imagine you can try to close that system off if you were a scientist, you know, put it in a vacuum, um, use the the the, uh, the the greatest kind of oil on on the one joint so that it is has as little friction as possible and you swing it back and forth. We can imagine what that does. Okay. Now imagine another step um, with a double pendulum with two joints in it okay and mm -hmm. you can look that up if you can't imagine that for our, our listeners but um, that immediately adds an enormous amount of non-linearity into that very simple system uh, so it's got uh, it's got rich dynamic behavior and it's highly sensitive to initial conditions so for example if you imagine that you were to take that double-jointed pendulum and hold it up on top in a straight line, you know, uh, and then release it, what would happen? Well, the result of letting go is incredibly um, dynamic. The equations are some ordinary dif differential equations, but um, it's very hard to predict what it will do next, okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's just with one extra joint um, right. in the system. Right. And in fact, um, at the margin, um, imagine you could balance it perfectly and it sat there. Now we can imagine doing that, but it turns out that, uh, that actually, um, you're, you're now, if you divide space and time down to the mm -hmm. Planck distance, <laughs> some, the most ridiculously tiny distance that we can imagine, you know, at that point, <laughs> it's kind of hard to say, are you, did you, did you unbalance it slightly to the left or to the right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so mm -hmm. the, 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 even at that most granular level that science tells us we could get to, 
um, you know, one thing or another will happen. It's and it's not in that regard. It's hard to describe that as deterministic entirely, mm-hmm. because at the Planck distance. Um, you know, that's when the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle comes into play. And that suggests that you cannot know the position um, or, or, uh, or the uh, moment at the same time, right? You, right? you can only know one. And in fact, the other is it's not even unknowable. It's undefined. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Undeterminable, cannot uh, be determined. Yeah. 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 So uh, what's interesting is that a pendulum um, is a relatively simple uh, system that you described, the, the, you know, the two-arm pendulum. Um, and it's, I, I think, similar in concept to what's called the three-body problem if you're yes. trying to define the gravitational movement or the movement among three forces attracted by gravity, you know, three instead of two. Two is pretty simple, but when three, the equations get really, really, really difficult. But that is still, in some sense, a... Uh, uh, kind of a defined closed problem and that kind of behavior isn't that's what's called chaotic behavior that's the yes, chaos is. chaos yes. theory saying you know minor minor changes in initial conditions and yeah you you point out that you could balance it but then you're dealing with things of quantum fluctuations is essentially going to push it one way or the other and you know completely unpredictable um, and, and once you get three over three degrees of freedom into a system, um, it is completely nonlinear. We don't have the mathematics to sort that out. And and yet think about it. Most of the world is has far more than three um, degrees mm-hmm. of freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, you sitting yeah. in that chair has so many more degrees of freedom. So all of us are immersed in a, uh, in a you know, just it's hard to imagine yeah. how many different degrees of freedom apply to macro object, objects. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, you know, there has been this kind of picture of the, of the uh, you know, of the uh, mechanical world, Newtonian worldview of everything you know mechanical and time and space all predictable and and i've still i still hear physicists you know talking about you know the laplace's demon well if you if you knew the position of every particle and you you knew the laws of physics you would know all of the future and um so why that 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 image of the clockwork world just seems to be so compelling that people hold on to it in spite of what we what we know about this three body problem of the so, yeah so so um so science has been very successful at a reductionist approach right uh, you break it down break it down, and the, and in fact on the smallest level at particle physics um you know the standard model that we have now does an incredible uh, job at being able to predict the next thing about items at that level um but i'll i'll point to um, philip W. Anderson. Um, he actually passed away at the very beginning of the pandemic, not not from uh, the pandemic, um, but uh, he was associated with the Santa Fe Institute, um, uh, Nobel laureate, um, and uh, he was actually instrumental in some of the early uh, discussions that's, that that uh, established the Santa Fe Institute. He's a, he's famous among other things for this one paper called "More Is Different." Mm-hmm. And he uses an example of the, he was a chemist, and uh, the ammonia um, molecule, and describing that even if you take all of the physics and that lead to the chemistry to how we believe that 
uh, molecules work, that one cannot use that reductionist approach to explain what happens to the ammonia molecule. It doesn't follow any rules that could be deducible from the reductionist view. And because, uh, so, so that actually, I, I mentioned Philip Anderson because he's the, um, probably the originator of uh, a lot of conversation about emergence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. that's where it Thank comes you from. for going there. That's where yeah. I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and his, his comment that more is different is that the reductionist view does not answer the question of how things are organized. So, mm -hmm. so I think there's a question about determinism is that, um, one need not question determinism at the most granular level itself, but the question is, does that determinism um, then dictate that at a macroscopic uh, level that things are still deterministic? Mm -hmm. And I think that complexity, mathematics, and some other things suggest that it isn't, that things emerge um, in, from the patterns among things at some other level of organization. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask about that again. I go back to my, my simple notion of a, of a dynamic system, like a, mm -hmm. you know, there's factors coming in from the outside or energy from the outside. So there's this turbulent behavior because there's change happening. And yet somehow within that turbulent, chaotic experience, um, sometimes stable structures begin to emerge in that dynamic system. So it begins to look like, uh, you know, something consistent, a structure. The example I use is turbulence in, in the flow of water. And, uh, you know, if, if water is going down a drain, it can become a verticular flow, sort of a very stable structure that does you know, certain good things in the system, um, but it emerges and it's not like, you know, somebody, somebody's telling it what to do. It just sort of emerges from that, that process. So that's, yeah. that's what well, you're... And, and another example is uh, surface tension on a, on a drop of water, right? Where does yeah. the, where does that come from, that surface tension? Well, mm -hmm. you know, again, some of these properties, um, I'll use that word loosely and we'll come back to that, I hope, um, yeah. um, are used to describe things, but they, they don't come from the underlying reductionist view. So, Right, right. And I, just to take another uh, step up the, the ladder of, you know, from physics to chemistry to biology, uh, my first guest was Daniel Friedman, who's an expert on ants and ant behaviors. And, you know, there's an example where the individual ants um, don't have much in the, you know, in terms of uh, their capacity to evaluate or judge or make choices. They're very, very simple in terms of the patterns. But, uh, and if, if you take one out of the nest, it'll die. It won't, won't have any role to play and it will die. Um, but when you get a million of them together, uh, certain behaviors and patterns begin to arise that create a, a, a colony and at the level of a colony there's a, there's a kind of intelligence about how things are organized that's what they call self-organization so this process seems to emerge not from the individual components but but somehow from this larger behavior of of the whole 
Um, and that's an example people point to of emergent uh, emergent characteristics. And 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 what I think what you were saying that uh, you know kind of Anderson is looking at the math of it, and the math is saying that you you can't look at the individual ants, even at the millions of individual ants, and and figure out what's going to happen. Yes, right. Well, you can't, I, you can't I, predict I, it. I, and I'm a beekeeper, among other things, and so I see that with my bees in my apiary. And uh, yeah, and in fact, there's a, a paper I just saw from a few weeks ago that they think that uh, I think bees can tell odd versus even. So there's there's some behaviors that, and where does that come out of from that very simple creature, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we've said a couple of things. We, we've talked about those um, those. Uh, uh, behaviors that grow out of simple systems, and and it, it seems there's something deeply mathematical about that. There's something deeply mathematical about the world, and um, and then as we bring more of these pieces together into networks, those networks themselves um, sort of generate uh, from them emerge these much more complicated behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. So that emergence, uh, you know, so how does that concept of emergent phenomenon square with kind of the older fashioned idea of cause and effect that, you know, scientists were, were good at looking at inside their little experimental uh, constructs to, you know, to determine cause and effect. And you think about it, you know, in Newtonian sense of billiard balls hitting billiard balls and, you know, so there's, there's a direct cause and effect, but how does... You know, how do you explain emergence with that concept, or it's just a different concept? Yeah, well, it's yeah. It seems like you're if you're just trying to um, deal with a reductionist view, you're missing an enormous amount of what's really going on in the world. Huh? I mean, I'll, I'll, let me use one more example. This is from Jeffrey West uh, at the Santa Fe Institute. He wrote a book uh, a couple years ago called Scale, uh, which um, was um, became a minor bestseller. Uh, yeah, and... it's, it's right up there, by the way. Okay, yeah. It's so, right up there. So uh, his, uh, um, he, for example, found these scaling laws that apply across an enormous number of different kinds of uh, things. So, for example, there's a scaling law uh, in biology that, that tracks between the smallest uh, mammal of all up to a blue whale, and it turns out that those structures are driven by a three-quarter power rule. Uh, mm -hmm. laws. So there's mm -hmm. a deep mathematics in that structure about how, how large they are, how long they live, uh, how many heartbeats they have, and, right. and those kinds of structures. And then Jeff even traces those, uh, those same structures across the development of cities, okay, uh, yeah, against yeah. companies, uh, and if huge I social <laughs> structures. So. Right. If I recall it, it, the the scaling law, the power, the powers, the numbers of three quarters, I guess it is, you know, actually come out of the mathematics of the way um, uh, circulatory systems exactly. can manage the best manage efficiently manage the flow of blood in the case of the body yes. or information in terms of cities. So there's there's a, a mathematical explanation for for those laws. Now, is that. Do you consider that to be causal? Um, well, that you, in, to, to add one thing, it, it comes out of the fact that we live in a four-dimensional universe, right, that we experience, uh, three dimensions of space, and the three dimensions of space dictate that, and it turns out then that the mathematics regarding biological creatures applies, uh, follows that rule. 
So again, that suggests something deeply mathematical about the way the structure of the universe um, works, and that um, that within that four-dimensional space, there's this this sort of emerges these incredibly complex um, systems, right? Um, mm -hmm. That again suggests that they're um, they're not deterministic. Back to your your uh, mm -hmm. Laplace's demon, it seems to be overthrown by what we see in the real world. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it still feels to a certain extent that like you're saying that the mathematics are causal. In other words, we can explore these systems. We look at the scaling laws. We look at the the three dimensionality of space and some of these some of these characteristics will fall out of that mathematical okay. analysis. I'm, I'm delighted that you're turning to cause and causation because that's one of the ideas at the heart of, of my uh, philosophical journey. Uh, but let me put a point on the, the where we've gotten to so far, I think, is that um, you can tell that I'm deeply scientific. I'm following a very scientific approach. I, I, I think that um, the laws of science have taught us a lot of things so far, our empirical research with countless experiments. Um, and it seems that the universe itself is a closed system. Okay. Um, that well, I've, I've, follows... might wanna, we might want to talk about that, but yeah, okay. let's accept okay. the, 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 the premise that the universe is a closed system. So there, there are no things, no thing, no causal influences of any type outside of that system. That's the that's that that. Are reaching in. So starting point. Yeah, that's a starting point for me because um, all of the science has has seemed to indicate that that's true. Uh, you know, we have conservation laws and that sort of thing that seem to be true at every time that we try to test for them. So and that it's a it's it's an interestingly um, mathematical system and and uh, and which is also very intriguing. Uh, so uh, before I go to causation. You know, um, as science has proceeded, um, uh, you think about Newton with his equations, um, and we realized those equations um, showed something deeply true about the universe. So, if you go to the mm -hmm. math and you find some elegant uh, equations, and then you do the tests, um, frequently they point to the way the world is organized. Um, uh, the, the physicist Wigner wrote a short paper that was very influential, um, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. Mm -hmm. And he just pointed out that this is sort of um, unexplainable. Why is it that the math tends to explain things about the natural world so, so well? Um, and scientists accept that. Um, you know, they accept that they find something that's deeply elegant it tends to explain something about the universe. So, so you know, why is that? That's that that certainly seems to suggest that the universe is organized around some kind of mathematical principles that actually are deeply elegant. <laughs> so, uh, follow the elegant math, and you most likely will find something about the universe that's true. Okay, that's that's a that's sort of an odd thing, but that's that seems to be true. And in fact, some would argue for the last 40 years of string theory that that's what's been happening at in theoretical physics. 
because the math is so beautiful that the string theorists have been trying to prove that that's the way the, the universe is. Well, um, they haven't been very successful. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but but that's that's where it's going. So so that's something to hold on to. So okay, within that question now. Do you want to go back to causation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where we started. So let's let's go back there. Okay. Um, so 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 I'll, I'll start at something even. Um, let me make a step first about something even more fundamental. I think. Um, so, the quick quick di digression to um, epistemology and what we can really know. Okay, um, David Hume had his famous fork. His tremendously important philosophical observation um, and the, the thinking goes something like this he divided in his fork the what we can know our epistemology what we can know into um, into um, two groups he can the mathematical things you know you can prove something um, mathematically and you can know it's true you can just mm -hmm. know it's true you can show the proof okay Mm -hmm. And, then and each think, pr a proof is a tautology. It's just it's by definition, tautology. if you follow the proofs, it's a tautology, and therefore it must be true logically. It must yeah. be true logically. Yeah. So there's something, there's, there's, a, there's a logic underneath everything yeah. that dictates everything that we know, and if, if you can prove it mathematically, it is true. So you can know that yeah. with certainty. The rest of the, the, the other bucket in, in, is um, things of the world, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes everything that can be known by science. And his point was that one cannot know anything there with such certainty. So if you were to take um, your, your phone and hold it up and drop it, <laughs> then uh, we all know that it will fall, right? <laughs> uh, but Hume asked the question, how do we know that? Why won't that phone, you know, go up or sideways mm -hmm. or some other direction? Mm -hmm. And his point is, well, and most people will say, of course, it's going to fall. Well, we kind of know that because of this thing called gravity. But his point is, there is no logical necessity in that being true. Okay. Right. So you know, we uh, we are embedded in the in the four dimensional world or more dimensions. Uh, we experience the world and we uh, and through a constant conjunction of the same thing happening over and over ago. Again, you know, every time you drop something, it falls um, unless you're in space. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so um, we're used to that and we make that assumption, but there's no logical necessity. That's Hume's conclusion. So. So what causes anything? Um, how do we know what causes what? Um, so I'm starting with the point that there's no logical necessity to say anything about causation for, with absolute certainty. All we can do is use our empirical uh, experience to make better and better scientific um, conclusions, okay? Right, and when we have one of those, we, we might as well behave as if Yes. It were a law of nature, uh, a, That's right. a, a given, uh, a postulate, uh, a fact, um, even though there's a risk that it could be wrong and, and one event is enough to disprove, you know, one counterfactual is enough to disprove a, a given law of nature. But, you know, we proceed as if 
but we really can't know for sure. Is that kind of what the that's what the right. human the human perspective is? Yeah, and and, yeah. and then you move forward in the philosophy of science, and you have Kuhn with uh, you know his paradigm shifts, and the and so we believe those things because of this accumulation of evidence until such time as some dramatic new evidence shakes our paradigm of how the world is organized. And, you know, the, the classic example is um, uh, our Newtonian um, uh, physics overturned by um, relativity, right? Um, mm -hmm. We have a suddenly a different change. Now, that's, uh, I, well, it's a, it's enormous paradigm shift, but it's also that uh, Newtonian physics can be subsumed within uh, relativity theory and you know all of those rules more right. or less work within our experience measure yeah. and there's an argument that the newtonian worldview is relatively consistent with our everyday experience of time and space and therefore it's a it's a helpful mental map that addresses most of the questions we might have but as science has explored the frontiers the you know the, towards the beginning of the Big Bang or towards the smallest, you know, you know, bits of space and time, it no longer works. So, um, yes. so we no longer have that psychological comfort that our, our experiential view of the world and this scientific view of the world called Newtonian physics, you know, is a map. Now it's not, our intuitive sense of how things work is not mapping to right. what quantum physics and uh, complexity science and other things are are driving at. Right. So 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 now let me just take a quick bit of history. So Democrates, you know, came up with the word um, atom, and we thought of the world as a bunch of little atoms, uh, you know, particles in some sense. Fast forward to um, James Young in the 1700s. He actually uh, came up with the double split experiment. Mm -hmm. One of the Renaissance m minds, I think there was a book that talks about uh, Young as the last Renaissance man. Uh, and that changed the paradigm. Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. Um, uh, Newton uh, believed in um, corpuscles, also an, mm -hmm. an atomistic view uh, of the universe. And so Adam's, uh, 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 Newton's um, 17th century view was, again, uh, atomistic. Yep. Young then... Uh, with his experiment, proved that it was waves. Okay, you know, yeah. think it's as opposed to these individual particles, it's a continuous kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, then along came um, um, Einstein, and then quantum physics, and again, it's it's quantized. It's back to particles again. So within that, you but know, not particles in the same. It's a very different kind of corpuscular nature, not the hard little balls that atoms were visualized, but right, as a right. as a some <clears throat> some kind of entity or object that sit blank space and blank time. And you can define some things about that, but you 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 know, there is no deeper. Well, and, and yes, and, and even more yeah. than that, what, when I go from Einstein and the in the early uh, quantized view, mm -hmm. uh, again, back to particles from waves from Young's waves to particles, and then um, with quantum, uh, quantum mechanics, and we have now uh, the duality, you know, is it a wave or mm -hmm. is it a particle? And in fact, the answer is kind of both. And, and quantum uh, mechanics, we can't really make sense of that because our intuitions about it has to be either a wave or a particle 
are violated. So, um, so um, uh, a more recent book um, by uh, Carlo Rovelli um, actually was about a year ago called Helgoland, and it is mm-hmm. his uh, his his attempt to really go back to quantum mechanics and try to uh, understand it. And he there's something called the Copenhagen explanation mm-hmm. that came from the beginning of um, the last century, uh, which was sort of the way that they kind of try to square the circle between these two things. And um, Carlo Rovelli says, well, he doesn't, it doesn't quite work. It's still not logical. And that he thinks that there's something relational fundamentally mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. basis of the universe. Yeah, so. I, thought, I thought you were going to get there. <laughs> I thought you were going to get there. Yes. I've, I've done my homework. Okay. Uh, before, we, before we do, though, I just wanted to go back and, and quiz again this issue of, um, you know, the intuition. The intuition we have about space and time is consistent with Newtonian physics, but now at odds with what we're finding from relativity and quantum theory. So... So um, that's tough to make sense of, yes. right? Yes. And then uh, also this, uh, you know, this this corpuscular view we have, and now we're finding that they could be waves or particles or both or, or both and 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 you know that that sense of the ontology is not consistent with the way you know we normally intuit things in the world, and so that's also pretty difficult to make sense of. So, so no, you know, expressing the fact that we are a bit at sea in terms of making sense of these things is right. I mean, we, we have this difficulty of our intuitive world and, and, the, and the world that science is exploring. Uh, and, and one of those, I'll just go back to this emergence phenomenon that, you know, somehow these scaling laws appear when you look at you know large numbers in in network you know configurations and they they appear and and they're coming out of the mathematics but that is very difficult to sort of wrap your intuition around that this this kind of abstraction of mathematics is somehow you know causal to what we're seeing in the world so all of that you know, it's difficult to make sense of that. So let's let's just put that mm-hmm. on hold because I think where you're going with uh, the relational question is maybe a, a way of making some sense of this. It's a different way of thinking about things. So um, so let's let's go go down that. I think you know thinking about uh, you know if we think about networks of um, things it's a little easier to to sort of think about them as relational like like when you think about Newtonian gravity uh, you know you're thinking about objects and cause and effect uh, between objects but you can also look at gravity as something that's really relational between between masses and everything has a relationship to everything else because what gravity that's what gravitational attraction says so it's it's more of a set of relationships than necessarily it is uh, a different way of visualizing than thinking about just particles and forces yeah so so and so just to put a point on this our our four-dimensional universe that we believe that we're that we're embedded in you know that's what that's what um all the standard model tells us there's four dimensions 
at least. <laughs> and, um, and we tend to look at the world through what we can experience. Okay. Uh, but I told you the epistemology, what we can know, do, it does not make mm -hmm. that absolutely true. Mm -hmm. We have to do more experiments. Um, and, um, and then, and then how does this stuff emerge? Um, the sort of the traditional way of thinking about it is in terms of properties. Okay. If you go back to the philosophy, the, there's an ontology is the philosophy, the subfield of what there is. And we tend to think in, you know, basic elements in ontology uh, that make up what there is of things like objects and properties and then maybe relations. And, uh, you know, that word properties is used all the time by all everyone. We think about a property of something. And so in, 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 um, in my papers there, I really ask the question, you know, what is a property? Is it, is there really a property? And, and where is it? Okay. So, uh, and I reached the conclusion that I do not see any evidence for properties themselves. Okay. That's a key point because, um, you know, where are they in our, in our experience? As you drill down through levels of scale, you know, from our macro scale down to um, to molecules, to smaller than molecules, what we typically think of as properties disappear. So, you know, um, uh, typical properties are things like um, uh, seeing um, light, color, and color disappears at a certain level um, um, when you get down to smaller and smaller levels. And it, it's just not there. It's not in anything that we see. So can I make an analogy there? Because, uh, again, I'll go back to the ant and the colonies. You know, you, you'll you'll see behaviors at the level of a colony. And uh, and then if you try to break it down and you look at the ants, you don't see it anymore. Right. So that's a that's kind of that same process. You know, when you when you go down and you look at those properties you know the properties of the ant colony and now you look at the ants and you, you don't it's not there you can't see it exactly really only exists at the level of a colony yeah so so yeah. so where where are those properties right <laughs> uh, or those things that we imagine as properties where is that at um, so i st said earlier that i believe in what the science tells us that about it being a closed physical universe uh you know the current theories are that it's at least five dimensions and maybe 10 or 11 according to some of the uh, spring, uh, string uh, theorists. Uh, the math since Kaluza in 1915 um, demonstrated uh, five dimensionality. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, a footnote on that, uh, Kaluza was a mathematician and um, and he was joined by uh, uh, Klein, a physicist, to try to explain uh, mathematically some of Einstein's equations. And Kaluza discovered that in five dimensions, mystically, uh, the, uh, the uh, Maxwell equations and Einstein's relativity came together in, in what's called the Kaluza miracle. The math was just so incredibly uh, uh, elegant in five dimensions. Again, that scientist believed it must be true. Okay, mm -hmm. and so five dimensions, Kaluza-Klein spaces became the basis for physics um, in theoretical physics from that time forward. And then 
only in about the 70s or 80s, then suddenly some other theoretical physicist says, wait a minute, um, here's some even more elegant mathematics if we add more dimensions. But um, so the, the world is not four dimensions that we experience, space-time, but the science suggests it's at least five. So there are other dimensions that the science suggests exist that we do not have access to, okay? Um, could those, what we think of as properties, those relations, George, that you described, could they exist there? And then could those be causal? Okay, to close this whole loop. Could those be causal? And could they exist there? And that's... Uh, the heart of my hypothesis. And I think that hypothesis perhaps offers some fascinating um, answers to many of these problems that have seemed to um, be intractable for so long. Um, it's a little hard to visualize, to use a uh, three-dimensional uh, analogy, um, what uh, what kinds of properties you're referring to there that sort of that that would sort of find their mode of causality in dimensions that we don't see or experience on a regular basis? Um, and I uh, I don't know if you'll be able to explain it any better, but one of the one of the puzzles of quantum physics that um, that I'm aware of is the uh, the paired particles, you know, in a quantum event two paired particles with identical spin, for example, but it's not determined, but you know they're, they have the same spin, they head off in different directions in the universe. And when one of those particles actually gets measured and the spin is determined, the other one automatically, you know, whenever measured would, experience, would show that same spin, even if they're light years apart. And so, that appears to either be subject to hidden variables, which nobody's ever seen, or mm -hmm. communication faster than the speed of light, which nobody believes, or something else that nobody can, can explain. So is yeah. this potentially a relational factor that is in a dimension that somehow uh, is outside of the frame of our, of our normal four-dimensional yeah, okay, so, so let me pick one of those examples that is um, on the cutting edge that is, seems to be unexplainable, and that is uh, some of the results of Bell's theorem, which suggest non-locality. And what does that mean? Um, we imagine that there are particles in the universe, mm -hmm. and, that, and we have this billiard ball um, um, uh, uh, thought about how it works. One bumps into another, and there's a direct cause of one object, one particle, on another. Okay? And we still have that left over from the old Newtonian view of the world. Um, Non-locality uh, seems to be borne out by multiple experiments over the last 20 years to show the, um, that, um, that, in fact, that doesn't describe the world, that, that things that are not in any way like particles are reacting with each other in uh, four-dimensional space is true. It's just 
doesn't explain it. And they continue to run experiments on Bell's theorem to close off all of these loopholes that could be other experiments. And in each of the experiments so far, continues to point to non-locality as a true description of our universe. So that brings into question our still extant view of sort of particles in some sense reacting in this four-dimensional space. Okay, so, um, and, and that again gets to the basis of these questions of this conundrum in quantum mechanics and relativity, and we can't seem to make sense out of it. It's same, similar to the, the, the split experiment, is it a wave, is it a particle? We can't make sense of those either. So, so again, it, imagine that we're embedded in this four-dimensional space, but what if it's five dimensions or, or more? And we don't have any access in terms of our sensory experience to those extra dimension or dimensions. What if in those other dimensions, or one of them at least, there is cause that causes everything in our four-dimensional space and and that that cause is in fact relational so the way to imagine it is to think of um let me use the block of time and then move from that uh there's the, in terms of thinking about time one way to think about time four dimensions <laughs> Uh, the, the fourth dimension is to think about it as a as a as a brick as a block. The Minkowski where, loaf. Yes. So yes, the Minkowski loaf. So where yeah. a two dimensional slice is um, th our three dimensional space. So imagine you take mm -hmm. our three dimension space and think of it as a as a slice as a two dimensional, and then time as the fourth dimension. Imagine that is the third dimension in our block. So you can imagine moving through time as going through slices of time, okay? Uh, slices of space uh, piled up one after another, okay? So now we have a block view of the universe. Mm -hmm. And now we can start to imagine that because we can imagine in three dimensions, okay? That's a view of um, space-time that we can get. Uh, and by the way, um, relativity theory says that all four dimensions exist so the, the entire block of space-time exists. <laughs> it's all sort of there, if you will. If you could be outside of space and time, you could see it from a sort of a cosmological view, okay? Um, okay, let's go to the next level. This is, this is uh, difficult. But now let's take these four dimensions of space-time and imagine they are like a surface. Let's, let's think of them as a, again, as a plane, as a two-dimensional surface. And we might even better imagine that. Uh, imagine it's a finite um, surface, so it's a closed sphere, for mm -hmm. example. Okay, So our four-dimensional space-time is this, um, this closed sphere. Now you can imagine that inside and outside of that sphere are other dimensions. Okay. And I already mentioned that uh, the Calusa mathematics suggests that five dimensions is incredibly elegant. It's sort of at least five dimensions, okay? So now imagine that outside of that sphere is another dimension and that that is causal on this four-dimensional space-time that we exist in. 
and that's where this relational causation is resident in a in a closed uh, universe. So the two paired particles um, have a relational feature that's held together or pulled together or somehow touching in that in that extra dimension. So that's exactly a, a possible way of explaining it. Doesn't you know as a way of avoiding you know violations of relativity and. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and so, way, way so, so, so here's another analogy thing. Imagine that the universe is um, like uh, a internal combustion engine, okay, where no. where the electrical system is outside of our four dimensions, okay. No. No. So if if you know engineers scientists were studying this and they suddenly see this spark appearing at some point, and then the engine moves and things happen but we can't tell what causes that spark where that mm -hmm. entire electrical system is hidden from us mm -hmm. right well we still could describe exactly how that engine worked you know a spark appeared out of who knows where and things happened and it worked okay and so so and and so we would have a perfectly understandable explanation of how that internal engine worked except where the spark came from and how that all worked mm -hmm. That would be hidden from us. Now, so yeah. imagine now that that uh, this entire causal apparatus is somehow hidden from us, and all we see in our four-dimensional experience of the universe mm -hmm. is these results. But they also perfectly make sense most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. There tend mm -hmm. to be mathematical causal rules, you know, deterministic uh, um, causes that we can model mathematically for most of the stuff except for um, this complexity, which is driven by these nonlinear systems. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so. All right, I wanna, uh, we're getting close to our uh, timeline here and I just wanted to stretch that a bit because okay. um, for a you know, four-dimensional creature, this multi-dimensional thing you know, sounds a little bit like magic and now we've, <laughs> we've identified something that could be could be causally related in that in that other you know difficult thing we can't imagine it because we're inside the box so we can't go outside the box but exactly. now you hear people talk about um mystical experiences mm -hmm. you know which which in their lives seem to have causal efficacy or unexplainable uh spiritual experiences you know mm -hmm. hearing voice hearing the voices of a of a, of a grand, you know, grandmother or, you know, experience of former life. You know, there's lots of strange things that you hear and there are lots of different ways of explaining it. But does this uh, kind of view of a potentially multiple uh, dimensional universe allow these things to potentially be considered as, as a you know, maybe there are lots of dimensions, dimensional aspects that um, that we don't perceive and don't understand, except there may be these uh, kind of one-off experiences that can't be explained. Well, that's okay. Great question. So let me take it in a couple of stages. Um, first, I'll, I'll refer back to um, uh, William James, the Varieties of Religious Experience 
And, um, you know, I covered that book when I was actually doing some of my philosophy. I did take some philosophy of religion classes. Um, you know, if you try to up, uh, apply a scientific view to those to those those sort of examples raised over a century ago, uh, you know, there's lots of reasons that, to doubt that it was anything besides, you know, um, biochemical, etc. And so I, I tend to take a scientific view of that, that it seems um, unlikely, uh, again, because I tend to believe, I believe in a closed physical universe where I don't see anything interfering with that. Um, but, you know, it, it, um, there's an enormous um, tradition of religion and meditation and um, and re religious people who have felt they have experienced something um, beyond what we tend to find in our four-dimensional uh, experience of the universe. And um, is it possible there's a crack in the cosmic egg in some way, and that we can have some look outside of those four dimensions? Um, big question. You know, big question. How how is our experience embedded in the four dimensions? Um, be, just sort of locked in because from the time that we were born, um, that's how we suddenly uh, learned uh, human experience repeating over and over again uh, that that uh, we have certain experience of the world. And that's how we, that's how our consciousness becomes anchored in the four dimensions. Is there, mm -hmm. is there some way to if there are more than four dimensions in um, in our um, empirical universe, uh, is there any way that we could experience that? And, and I, I won't close the door to say there isn't. Mm -hmm. I, one of the puzzles that comes to mind or one of the risks that comes in mind, I know, is if you, because I've seen people, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to doubt and discount and deny and uh, you see that now with denialism and science, you know, just simply not believing science because they can close it off. So, so if you conceive of uh, the world in a certain way and you say, well, that, that's not possible, or you push that kind of a thing aside, then you won't see it. Now, there's a great uh, book. Um, no, I can't remember. The, uh, the author's name escaped me. It's called On Miracles. Um, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, On Miracles, okay. where he talks about that thing that, you know, you can see something one way, you can see something another way, you know, the, the, the duck rabbit, you know, uh, kind mm -hmm. of phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once you're, once you're seeing it in a certain way, you're going to see it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You won't be able to see the other way if you're kind of confirmed in that. And, you know, so uh, we now have this model of potentially this um, kind of relational dimension that we don't really understand because we can't perceive it. But that opens the door to the possibility that, you know, you know, we got locked into the Newtonian worldview of four, you know, four, three dimensions of space and one of time and, and excluded anything else. And so even if there is some evidence of that, it takes, you know, it takes a hundred years of quantum physics anomalies to start breaking open the mindset, mm -hmm. right? So maybe we ought to be a little bit more, less, uh, less dogmatic about the possibility that, uh, you know, the, the ancient wisdom practices, you know, 
that that humans followed for thousands and thousands of years. You know, well, maybe there's maybe there's something there, and we should well, be yeah, and, and, open and, to that. Yeah, and and what you know, what is the eye that is you, George? And you know, what I'll ask our listeners: What is the eye that is you? Um, what mm-hmm. is that really, really? And mm-hmm. um, so what comes out of this relational view of the world is this that all of these objects all these things that we experience in four dimensional space are relations if they in fact exist in another dimension and in fact all of these systems are relations they're relational Mm -hmm. systems and each of us is an enormously complex relational system and and uh you know, that's the essence of you. It's not this four-dimensional, this three-dimensional creature moving yeah. through four dim- a yeah. fourth dimension yeah. of time. It's not. That's not really it. So, right. can we can we ever um, understand and really feel and experience our true self? Well, that's a good, good question. Are we locked into mm-hmm. it and we'll never see it? <laughs> uh, so, I, I came up with an example of this other dimensional thing. You know, so so my DNA is connected in a very, very sophisticated, complex network to the DNA of every human being on the, on the face of the planet, right? Your mm-hmm. DNA, for example. Mm-hmm. That's a relational network. It's real. Mm-hmm. It extends backwards into the past in a, in a very complex kind of a way. And that's just as much of you know, a statement about who I am. I mean, it's part of the trajectory of who I am or who you are uh, as, you know, as the current space and time I happen to be in. So this is a different dimension, but it's also uh, causal. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. It's a causal, it's a causal network, a causal set of relationships that exists within space and time, but in a very... Uh, complex way and then you look at language is another one it was a causal uh, you know has causal power but where did the language come from how did that develop it's a whole set of relations and evolutions of that uh, particular set of relational characteristics over time so I'm beginning to think Gary that maybe there's maybe there's lots of dimensions (laughs) <laughs> well, it just says that it's an incredibly elegant system of relations at so many levels, and uh, you know, it's it's actually a, you know quite beautiful universe that we we exist in. So, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you one one final question. Um, have you ever had any of those kind of experiences in your life where you just said, "Wow, I don't, I don't know." I don't can't put a label on this. It's something that's transcendent or trans, transports me. Yeah, um, and and I referred to William James to say that I'm very scientific. So sometimes one always wonders about those experiences. So there there's a I, I spent uh, 30 years in tech, and and there were a lot of small companies, a lot of startups that uh, you know went sideways. Uh, so I like to describe my career as having a lot of at bats, you know, lots of strikeouts, and along the way before I kind of had a, a very successful uh, latter part of my career. And uh, in those days when you're working 80-hour weeks and uh, and things are not going well, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, you know, you're, uh, I'm a very competitive guy, so you're very, you're working very hard and, uh, and I would also run 
to uh, at the end of the day to stay in shape after all this work. And so I'd be uh, out running <laughs> nine o'clock at night and uh, here in San Francisco. And there was um, one of those periods when it was yet again another company that was not going right. <laughs> and, uh, and I was running up near the uh, Golden Gate Bridge uh, late at night and I stopped and I looked out and I had this transcendent feeling that I was looking at my house in the future. <laughs> okay. And, and that was such a bizarre thought because the, the places where I looking were something that was way out of my ability to afford it. And, but I had this feeling that was very hopeful that there was some future that was, um, that was going to be much more positive than where I was. And, uh, and so, and it was a very powerful feeling of, of, um, you know, seeing something. Um, that's where I'm at today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Part of your trajectory, Gary, this has been a delight. It's been a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground, uh, got, got heavy into some, some big, big, heavy issues and, um, going to digest that. We may have, you know, some opportunity on this podcast again down the road to uh, to work more on some of those. But I want to thank you very much for your time, and it's been a real delight. Thank you, and, and thank you, George. It's been really great. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. Next episode, I will be joined by Michaela Ench, a multi-talented communication and marketing specialist, translator, safari guide, keen naturalist, and biology enthusiast. In 2021, Michaela wrote the book, From Nature's Mouth, the handbook for bio-infused human communication. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Weekend, Plank Sip, and Talk of Today. And join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.